1: Today's special episode is an interview with Dr. Rachel Mesh. She received her BA from Yale College, her MA from Columbia University, and her PhD from the University of Pennsylvania. A specialist in 19th century French literature, Dr. Mesh is the author of Having It All in the Belle Epoque, How French Women Writers Invented the Modern Woman, and The Hysterics Revenge, French Women Writers at the Fond de Siècle. Today's interview is about her new book, Before Trans, Three Gender Stories from 19th-Century France, which has been shortlisted for the American Library in Paris Annual Book Award and is about three writers raised as female but who identified as men and the incredible lives they led. So thank you very much for joining me on the podcast, Dr. Mesh.
0: It's my pleasure.
1: So you have a very interesting book, a very unique book, Before Trans, Three Gender Stories from 19th Century France. At one point, you describe your book as biographies of three different people who were raised as female in 19th century uh, Fond de siècle, France, but who defied gender norms by dressing like men and sometimes even identifying as male. How did you come upon this topic?
0: So, um, my field is late 19th century France and particularly French women writers. My previous two books really were about French women writers. Um, and so it's sort of out of that that this emerged I was the my my previous book was about women's magazines in the early nineteen hundreds the first photographic magazines um and a kind of community of female intellectuals that women writers that grew out of that um and one of the people that I came across at that time was Jane Lafroix, who was one of the subjects of this book before trans. She was the only one in um in in these magazines which were pretty conservative and would depict these hyper-feminine women who could balance both femininity and feminism. But that was not the case with Dulafroix, who appears just as she does in in, in the book. And by the way, I should just say at the outset, I use the female pronouns to refer to these figures, even though their gender identity is very much in, in question here in the subject of the book, we could talk about that. At some point, but I didn't feel that it was a choice for, for me to, to make as a historian. So it kind of preserves the disjunction between their lived identities and the way in which language at the time allowed them to be known. But um but I also sort of invite people to think about it in their own way and use whatever pronouns feel right to them to to talk about these three these three figures. So in any case, Judah foi I came across in these women's magazines. Um, in these beautifully tailored men's suits, often alongside her husband. And it was very much out of uh, intention with everything else that was in those magazines. And I sort of didn't really deal with it in the realm of that book that I was writing, um, because it was really an anomaly. And I just promised myself I would look into it afterwards. And as I started to look into it, I realized that something very much different was at work with her in terms of her drives and motivations and what kinds of questions she was working out in her writing. And that sort of got me thinking it was, I was reading a lot about transgender identity at the time, just in in modern times, in our current trans moment, as people have called it, and things started clicking. Um, And it was because of my really sort of deep knowledge and experience with women writers and feminism of the time, that I recognized that there were some figures for whom something else was clearly at work. Um, and I really wanted to, to figure out how gender identity played a role there. And so I started looking into Jude-A-Foy, um more specifically. And that's when these questions started forming. And I realized that Rachel, who I whom I had studied um in my dissertation in my first book, also was kind of in this broad category, working out some some shared questions. and that, and eventually I came to Multifu. Um, but the, it wasn't that I set out or knew that I was writing a book about trans identities in the nineteenth century from the outset. It was really driven by the desire to understand particular individuals and then realizing that these modern paradigms helped me to do that
1: so, That's a very fascinating answer. Your book's title is Before Trans, which I think is both an important distinction and a conundrum all in one. There's actually quite a controversy over whether or not we as historians should identify past peoples with sexual or gender identities. Just as an example, I got into an argument with Dara Van Orr, who said that even if a text said that a man in ancient Greece only had sex with other men, she would not call him gay because sexual identity at that time was so different. In ancient Greece, it was considered masculine to have sex with younger men or with fellow soldiers. In the Roman Republic, it was perfectly acceptable to have sex with men as long as the person doing it was doing the penetrating. As you might know, some senators slandered Caesar for supposedly having an affair with the king of Bithynia, and the scandal wasn't that they had sex, but that some claimed Caesar was the one receiving. And then, of course... Pompey the Great was often made fun of because he loved his wife so much, which is considered to be unmanly at the time, and which I find so funny. So likewise, your book covers three individuals who sometimes identified as men. Would you call these people transgender?
0: So it's it, you're right that it's a, it's a complicated question and a, and a conundrum. The way that I use the terminology is I want to make sure that people are really using this lens to understand these figures without saying they were transgender, which has a very specific meaning and, of course, a very modern meaning and something that is of our current moment. Um, But people have been questioning their gender identity and um, having complicated notions of their gender identity long before there was terminology in which to um, identify with that. And so it's similar in a way to the way that we use queer to talk about the past and the way that we used feminist or feminism to talk about the past. When we talk about that, the earlier time periods and sort of recognize queer identities, it's not necessarily even the word identity is a, is a modern construction, right? But it allows us to see um, what was being worked out. And I'm not talking about ancient Greece necessarily, but, um, but the 19th century, which is um, a moment much closer to our own when a lot of these modern ideas are and, and sexology and, and the science of it all, um, which takes these questions in a very problematic direction, but nonetheless is part of a cultural grappling. In terms of, for example, feminism, we can understand certain gestures as feminist in the 1890s, even if they were done by women who did not identify with the feminist feminism of the time period. Um, so it's it's kind of a similar vein. I want people to recognize the questions that are being worked out here and the lack of a language in which to work them out. And some people are more comfortable calling that trans or not. It sort of depends on, you know, if you're a historian or a literary scholar who's being very particular about a particular term versus a kind of gesturing, you know, more looser relationship um, with it. So it's not that I'm not I'm not, I, I'm using trans also um, in a very expansive way. You know, you can imagine a little asterisks next to it, which is sometimes meant to signal that expansiveness, that it can mean non-binary in its multiple forms. And so it's not necessarily, we had a sort of more limited understanding at a certain point of what you know, we used to call um, transsexualism or transgenderism um, when we would imagine it was, you know, really a kind of a binary thing of someone being raised as female or assigned female at birth, but actually identifying as male. And we know now that there's just a huge spectrum. And so um, this is a book that, or these these lives are about, you know, sort of understanding that that spectrum has always existed and that if we look to figures from the past through a lens that allows for that we can understand these figures a lot better so that trans that we know what it means now in you know in kind of more much more subtle ways than ever before perhaps for those of us who are cisgender as i am and because there's so many more kind of conversations and narratives and and uh, media you know coverage stories that are shared access to the trans experience or to trans experiences that signals, I'm I'm sort of harnessing that in this book for us to understand the past better and to kind of keep that in mind as we are hearing about the subtleties of these lives to understand that they were really struggling with and working out gender identity as opposed to simply being seen as subversive or rebellious or even feminist. Um, So it's about sort of expanding um, our way of understanding gender history.
1: All right. So now that we've gotten the theory out of the way, let's get into the three people who you studied. Can you tell us about the exciting and adventurous life of Jane Duleff?
0: Sure. So who as I said, was my sort of the my first foray into this whole all of these questions. She famously um, followed her husband to battle um, during the Franco-Prussian War, which broke out just after they had gotten married. And um, she didn't, she couldn't be a soldier, but she could be a sharpshooter. So she kind of got in through that loophole. And, and really, you know, she didn't want to just be a or someone who was, who some women who would kind of bring food and water to the soldiers, she wanted to be an active participant. And that's probably the first moment that she came to understand her comfort and affinity with masculinity. And It was one of the happiest times of her life, even though it was a uh, I mean, happy is probably not the right word for it, but it's a it's a moment that she comes back to again and again, and relives through her writing. And then the other huge moment in her life, and the one that makes her famous, is that her husband Marcel was a civil engineer and um, and kind of architecture enthusiast, and he got himself basically sent to the Middle East on this um, archaeological expedition, which they their goal was to end up in Persia. Into to the ancient city of Susa. Um, and she came along as she was supposed to be the photographer and sort of, you know, take notes in, um, on the journey. And she ended up writing travel logs and taking hundreds and hundreds of photographs um, that were published in the Tour du Monde, which was a new travel journal that was very popular because right, people couldn't go to these exotic places but they could read about them. And there was a whole fad and fascination with reading about them. So um, so she goes along with the team and again sort of finds herself in this, begins wearing um, men's clothing again and passes easily for a man. Because in in the Middle East and in Persia, um, you couldn't if you're a woman, you had to be veiled when you were circulating in public public. And so she could only be assumed to be a man the way that she was dressed alongside the other members of the team. Um, it's a very harrowing first uh, mission. And they end up coming back and getting very close to Susa, but not really making it. And they come back and they think that's it. They're never going to go back again. But they do end up making the second mission where they um, are wildly successful. And they bring back parts of um, these ancient palaces that are, you can still see on display in the Louvre today. And this makes them absolute celebrities. It's hard to, it's hard to sort of fathom or to articulate the, it's hard to find the analogy in modern parlance for what, what the, the level of celebrity that bringing finds from Persia would afford you in the late 19th century. But they were sort of above reproach, just absolutely admired. There was the Salle de la Foix that was opened in the Louvre, and um, and she they would lecture around town, be invited to the president's home, and um and 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 she went on then to write novels and to be a kind of public inte- intellectual and eventually be a part of these women's magazines as well and was you know absolutely venerated and she continued to wear men's clothing and those beautifully tailored men's suits that i um that i that i mentioned earlier as well as to keep her hair cropped short and i think she sort of made a decision. Um, that she couldn't go back to the life that she had briefly lived as kind of his wife who was dressing as a woman in the interim between Persia and um, the Franco-Prussian War. And she was basically in this category by herself and accepted for that and lived a very happy and successful life. Um, But there's just sort of another side to it that I was really interested in in the book, which is in some of her novels Um, and some of her other writings, and in the travelogues themselves, you get this narrative of her process of coming to terms and trying to understand her gender identity um, and her affinity with masculinity. She sees herself as a kind of Joan of Arc hero uh, figure and and hero, and that that heroism authorizes her pants wearing. So she's wearing pants, um, you know, the, the title of that section of the of the book is Masculinity for God and Country. And you and what I was so interested in, because actually my background is as a literary scholar, um, not a historian, um, I kind of migrated to history because I found that the frameworks allowed me to do more, um, a different kind of literary analysis and to see some of these writings in different contexts. But what really fascinated me in these, in the writings was this repeated effort. To make sense of herself and to kind of return to the same set of questions um, that so clearly resonate with her life story, um, and so there's this there's this tremendous optimism and confidence that that she develops, but there's a the other side of it is a kind of vulnerability that she clearly feels that comes through in her efforts to find her peers to figure out who she identifies with, and she goes back. She's not a modern woman. She is more, um, sees herself as an ancient one, right? And that the, what's happened in society is that we've lost these kinds of women who could be like men. And so she comes to these narratives, but you also find in her archives, there are unpublished biographies of gender crossers over time. And in that, I think you really see that the searching and the quest, and, and we, don't, we don't know why. She worked on it with, on them with her husband, Marcel. We don't know why they were never published. You know, we can sort of imagine. But um, but there's just pages and pages of them sort of painstakingly looking at the Abbé de Choisy and others from earlier time periods, although there's one contemporary who is an opera singer known as Stuart, who sings soprano. And there's that, you, you know, the, the rep, through the repetition, you can really feel some of the yearning and the searching that was still going on.
1: One thing that I learned from your book is that women had to have a permit to wear pants. Do you want to explain that?
0: Oh yes. Um, so that's the, the famous permission de travestissement. Um, it was illegal in France in Paris in particular to for women to wear pants without one. and that law was actually only um, stricken from the books in I think it was. 2013 actually um, so a lot of this a lot of us have been breaking it for a long time. There were only a handful of women who went through the trouble of p- procuring one and we don't have the records because um, they're, they're just the, the archives are, are incomplete there um, but we do know that um, they, they you needed one and um, and that these three had that in common. You were supposed to have a medical um, reason for it. And um, but clearly people with means had ways of sort of getting around that.
1: You are quite the rebel. So your next biography is of Marguerite Emery, who later took up the name Rashilde. Is it Rashilde or Rashid Rashid See, <laughs> yeah. see, it threw me off because he said he was a Swedish noble. So, OK. Uh. <laughs> um, yeah, I didn't. I you see as a Swedish, I assumed like if it was Swedish, it'd be like Rashilde. Or something. Well,
0: she probably wasn't re- pronouncing it correctly.
1: Okay, yes. Well, anyway, took up this name, which you say much better than me, after being possessed by a ghost. Since I've spoiled it, care to tell us the story?
0: Um, sure. So, Rashield's grandparents were spiritists, um, which was kind of a, well, it was a thing, but a fad in the second half of the 19th century. Um, but they were true believers. Um, and they believe that you could commune with other worlds. And when Rashid was a teenager, she was exploring. She was writing. She was writing stories for the local paper, and um, and really avoiding being married off, um, and you know, discovering herself in various ways. And um, and so she basically staged a séance where she said she was being possessed um, by the spirit of a Swedish nobleman was speaking through her and whose name was Rashield and um, and so she begins telling stories this way and telling the story of Rashield and how he's looking for his um, lost lover and um, his her, her mother who's who it was her mother's side the spiritist grandparents is fastidiously taking notes in a notebook that Rashild claimed to have have kept and when she retells the story she refers to her. Her mother's notebook. And the, the family totally believed that this is what was going on. But Rashield later on explains or explains in her in her memoirs that this was her way of introducing her family to a voice that wasn't the proper voice for a young woman of her time and place. Um, so it was a kind of coming out, and she's really known as Rashield henceforth, and so I brilliantly refer to her as such. Um, and she's known. She's the most famous of the three that I write about. She's she's known to French literary scholars. When she tells her parents about a year later, she she reveals to them, you know, I this was just sort of a, I was, I, you know, this was this wasn't real. The mother says, well, how can you be sure? How can you be sure that um, that you're not actually being possessed by this man from another era? Um, and so she had this strange thing where she was constantly declaring who she was and who she was not. Um, She would also call herself a werewolf, a monster, a cat, all kinds of other avatars. And the people she would say this to would sort of laugh and say, oh, she's being provocative. You know, aha, that's just, you know, who she is. And I think there was this kind of directness that she found she could have because people didn't understand it. Um, But for us, looking back, as scholars, once you sort of think about it through this paradigm and understand that this is what she was working out, there are actually many of these moments where she, she tells us exactly how she wants us to understand her.
1: Thank you very much for that. So finally, there is Marie-Amelie Charoulet de Montéfat later known as Marc de Montéfat can you tell us about Mark's exciting life running from the police?
0: Sure, so Mark de Montifaux, um, that she starts signing her name, Mark, as when she works as an art critic, which is her first um, writing gig, basically. Um, and she's quite successful at it. And art historians know that name and don't necessarily know, um, um, you know the, the, the details of who is behind that moniker but her art criticism still sort of sounds historically as relevant because she re- reviewed people like Manet in the salons. She sort of gains her reputation. She starts writing um, these sort of Christian histories, um, rewritings of, of, um, of folklore and um, with a kind of sexy twist. And people do not like this. And I think that part of why, um, the the law kind of comes after her because her writings weren't really, it's in the 1870s, starting around 1876. And the writings weren't, you know, particularly audacious. There are lots of other people writing who, who got away with it. And she would complain about this all the time, by the way. But I think that probably what happened is that someone figured out, because really, it's not one of those cases where sort of everyone knew immediately who who was behind the signature. People really thought that Marc de Montifaux was an art critic. And I have a feeling that she was dressing like a man um, sort of secretly and passing this way at art exhibits long before she takes this on as a public identity. And I think that they probably at some point people figured it out. And, and were angry about it and troubled by it and unsettled in ways that they didn't understand. Um, and so they really come after her. And so she starts, she's, she's writing these histories. She's very erudite and she just loves to go to the library and, and find these old editions of things and, and do these new versions of them, um, of the Vestal Virgins and um, Mary Magdalene and, and, and such. Focus saying she was very interested in, in the sexual aspects. And so she is publishing these, and she keeps getting censored, and um, and brought to brought to brought in front of the law, right, um, indicted and 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 sentenced to prison. And each time she she protests, and eventually is able to secure um, a term in the asylum sort of the, the mental hospital instead of going to the prison and she's outraged that she's being sent to a women's prison as opposed to the artists prison because she sees herself as an artist without you know gender is not important why isn't she getting sent to the same place that people who you know who get who who, are, who have otherwise written pornographic works get sent sent um, so she's outraged by this but she will not stop and so she she just continues to publish and publish and everyone at first it's in the press um, at a certain point, people are just sort of irritated by it and they say, well, why don't you just stop? You know, you, you know what you have to do to go- stop getting sent to jail. But, um, but she's insistent and this is, is very much a part of who she is. Um, she really just wants the right to write about what she wants and to be herself. And I think this is part of the way that she's working out her gender identity. Unlike the others, she doesn't really write about it specifically. She doesn't really explore gender identity in her writing. Um, the photographs we have of her kind of document dramatically the transition that she went to through um, in coming into her own masculine identity. And in her writing, she writes through male characters. And that's sort of part of how she lives as a man, in addition to signing Marc de Montefiore, which she took a lot of pleasure in. Eventually she takes on a second male pseudonym, Paul Erasmus. Um, and I think it may be because people already knew who Marc was, so she needed a new one to sort of really inhabit that male identity. And people routinely contact her. There are many letters to her as Tolerate that, and this that fully assume her masculine identity. You can see that she really enjoys that. She doesn't want them to actually meet her or to know who who she is. Um. um and so, um, the, there's a kind of there's a kind of rage that runs through Multifil's writing that I found really interesting. That she and the the rage was a way of expressing what she didn't have the words to express otherwise. So she's often saying, well, why can't you just, why can't I just be me? Isn't that enough? You know, that's the title of that section. I am me. I don't want to have to explain who I am. I'm simply me. And um, I came to really understand that those, the acts of rebellion, seeming rebellion and anger and rage and getting sent to jail was about, was a form of expression. Ultimately. And it's similar in some ways. Rashida did some similar kinds of things in her writing and in her behavior, where she was seen as really audacious and um, and acting out. Um, and I think that is that is that that's a that's just the wrong framework through which to understand them. It, it has a ver- it, it's relying on a very particular idea of what's right and what's wrong, and and it's actually relying on gender norms um, and heteronormative patriarchal gender norms. Um, When in fact, um, that's not the terms by which they were operating. And so these are actually kind of expressions of self more than they should be seen as just, you know, rebellions or acting out.
1: Today's episode is brought to you by Factor. Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals make eating better every day easy. With over 35 different options a week to choose from, including keto, calorie smart, vegan, and veggie, and more, there's always something new and delicious to enjoy. With over 55 nutrition-packed add-ons, Factor is your go-to for all your dietary needs. Cheaper than takeout, healthy and easy to prepare... Factor provides all the restaurant-quality meals, snacks, smoothies, whatever you need, they've got it. And with food ready to heat and eat, you won't have to deal with the regular kitchen mess. Factor is giving out a special deal for our show's listeners. Head to factormeals.com slash FrenchHistory50 and use the code FrenchHistory50 to get fifty percent off, that again is French History Five Zero at FactorMeals dot com slash French History Five Zero. Sign up now; your stomach will thank you later. So, there are quite a few important themes that run through each of these stories. One is language and literature. You talk about how the language of the time didn't have words to describe these people's feelings and identities. Moreover, French is a bi-gender language as opposed to English, where words are neutral. Yet each of these three were writers, and when words failed them, they expressed themselves through stories. Can you explain this process?
0: Sure. So uh, the the subtitle of my book is Three Gender Stories from 19th Century France. Um, And that idea of the gender story is crucial, right? And that goes back to your question about trans and how we use that word. The idea is that they didn't have a way to identify themselves. And and so when you don't have a term, you often turn to narrative. I mean, that's how all of our identities work. We tell stories about ourselves constantly, whether we say them out loud or not. We have certain narratives about why we are the way we are. And that allows us to deal with the complexity of our lives. Um, And those stories can shift. And so what I was interested in was the way, the extent to which um, these writers were were working through their gender stories, and that we can sort of understand who they are through the stories that they told about themselves. And they're not always direct. Um, That was part of the kind of biographical approach that I had. Um, It was really being deeply immersed in their biographies and their writings of all sorts and their photographs, the ones they took, the ones that were taken of them, that allowed me to pick up on these resonances in different parts of their lives. And to see, for example, when Jules Afrois was had characters who were at war, in battle, that those were the same images that she used to describe herself in more personal writings. I was, I was really taken with the way in which um, they were working through and making sense of themselves through their writing, um, and that being a writer, in the stories that they told really were, um, in some uh, certainly, life affirming and perhaps even life saving. Rashield struggled with depression um, throughout her life, and especially in the early part of her life. And you can see with these figures that they they settle into their identities through being able to render them. In writing and in and in stories, and so for for example, for Julie this idea of masculinity for God and country, as I said before, you sort of watch her come into this through her through the travelogs and her her recognition of her own heroism and her own strength, both in the Franco-Prussian War, but then in her abilities to be part of the team in Persia, and then there are these novels that she writes actually about gender transition about girls who or who thought they were girls and then sort of become boys and young men in the second part of their lives through their heroism and through their service to to God and country and you see how that really echoed with her own life. So that was the first one that really clued me into the way that she was using her writing in this way. And that made me think about Rashida in a different way whom I encountered before, and to realize that she was doing something similar, and there are a few characters in her fiction, particularly in her novel, Monsieur des which has a character named Raoul, who shared Mary, a, a female character who, um, who fenced and who dressed in men's clothing and sort of switched around with pronouns, actually. And, and that's a, a story where the inability to fit into language is actually painfully on display, even though it's a decadent novel and it's not usually seen as being particularly sentimental, it gives expression indirectly to this vulnerability that makes sense um, in this other context. Um, and so, so the gender story, R- Rashid is, she is incredibly pro- prolific. She lives into her nineties. She keeps writing up until the bitter end. And when you recognize some of the ways, some of her avatars and her writing and in the ways in which she's thinking about gender, you start to see some of the repetitions and this reworking, reworking, re, reworking of the gender story. Um, Multifu is a little bit different, as I said, because she doesn't describe it directly, but all three of them wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote. And I think it was a sort of therapeutic writing, um, sometimes a frustrated writing. It's through their writings and through this their creative expression, we really gain understanding to something that they did not have they couldn't supply the the ready terms that we might you know now be able to supply if you write a book and fill it under trans memoir right we know what you're what you're talking about and what what you're exploring um, and so I really wanted to by putting them together in this way reframe the way that we think about figures from the past and you know in light of our kind of concern about anachronism and presentism and not wanting to po- impose our ma- modern narratives. I think there's a way that we can still use our uh, our our modern frameworks to hear what they were saying more clearly.
1: Another major theme is the Franco-Prussian War. Lafroix fought in it. Rashield's father was traumatized by it, and Marc de Montifort published their first novel, "The History of Mary Magdalene," in 1870. How did the war impact these three people?
0: I'm really glad you asked that. That was something I sort of started thinking about um, late in the project. And it's very interesting, actually, that um, for Jules Lafoy and Montifo, I saw a connection there that they they both, well, I mean, Jules Lafoy succeeds in being a part of the war. And I think um, really, right, that's such a pivotal part of of her self-understanding and and plays a role. And she she has a novel called Volontaire, Volunteer, which is about someone joining the army during the French Revolution. And it's so clearly about her own role in the Franco-Prussian War. And there's so much feeling in it. So, so much feeling in it. And it has to do with the, the most important scene really is when she puts on the uniform, um, the volunteer uniform. And that's when she kind of becomes a man. And there's a kind of transformation and I was struck that in Montifaux's novel that deals with this, uh, which is I uh, translated as um our our petty officers no sous officier in French, which is a minor novel that <laughs> no one ever read besides me as far as I can tell, um and if maybe a few hundred people at the time. But it's about um, the aftermath, and it's about going back to Alsace, and she sort of found this common enemy in, in Germany um, that she can direct her rage towards. That's a stand-in for her own in-betweenness, I argue, um, and her own sense of gender exile, as I put it. Um, but what was striking to me is I realized that novel was, was published around 1900. But she had published some stuff earlier in in the eighteen seventies, where you really see that patriotism, which I totally hadn't. People don't rem- remember that about Montefeu at all. And she had had a similar kind of relationship to the Franco-Prussian War, but not realized, where she clearly admired was perhaps envious of the men who got to put on the uniform and became sort of men through this, through this experience. And there's a scene like that in her novel where one of the male characters puts on a uniform. And I was struck because it just dwells on the experience of the clothing in a way that was so similar to the to a similar passage in Jules Lafoye's volunteer novel. And it made me realize that these figures who um, who identified so strongly with masculinity felt particularly excluded in these moments when men were being, um, were being called up and asked to perform their patriotism and women didn't have um, the same way to express it. And so to feel that you were a man but couldn't be recognized as such um, would be, you know, a very intense source of feeling. And I don't think, you know, I have a sort of alternate version of this book, which is sort of the HBO slash Netflix version. <laughs> um, and I would do a lot with with that. You know, they didn't write that. There's not that much that they told us about it. But I think it's 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 really... Um, there's so much to think about there. There's so much feeling there that hasn't really um, been explored. And it's just a really interesting angle into their psychology and their identities. And for Rashid, it was different that her, her, her father was this um, sort of defeated war general who comes back and is kind of emasculated and angry and brutal. And so for her, it's associated with a very brutal form of masculinity. And in her novels, you see sort of different different kinds of interactions with different forms of masculinity that she at once identifies with and is a little even you know repulsed by, you might even say. So um, so you're absolutely right that it's something that is is running through, even though it's not front and center. It's a really interesting thread that runs through.
1: Another important theme is marriage as it might surprise someone picking up this book and seeing that there are three people who are contesting, who are figuring out their identity, that all of them eventually married. What struggles did marriage bring, and how did it impact them? Were there any positive impacts from it?
0: Sure, and that's another great question. In fact, this book started out, um, it wasn't quite this book, but I thought I was writing a book about marriage. And I was interested, as I mentioned, that Jules Lafoy was frequently seen alongside her husband in those magazines. And so I was interested in some of these kind of power couples where the wife had these real, were, was very intelligent and was appreciated for her intelligence. It wasn't that she had to sort of express that intention with her marriage. And that can be said for all three of these marriages. They were married to men that very much appreciated their brilliance they didn't necessarily appreciate the men back in the same ways, Uh, although they're different. Gillesfoy and Marcel, her husband, were very much a power couple. They were best friends. You know, you could sort of wonder about his sexuality and how he fits into this. I talk a little bit about that in the book that, you know, and and they're together, they're often in, when people see modern photographs, when people see photographs of them now, um you know they look like they've been described as two gay men There actually is a picture of them that appears in Leslie Feinberg's transgender warriors which is a kind of history of of trans people who she had, uh, puts in that category over time and she has this picture of the Judafa whom she doesn't really know who they are but she says who you know is what is this a, a, a gay male couple from the 19th century so so that's sort of interesting, if anachronistic. Um, but there is something there in that they they, they they sort of dressed alike and are this very happy pair for the most part. So she married someone who was very much someone who understood her. Um, Rashil marries, she describes her marriage as a kind of suicide. Um, she marries because she is struggling. She needs stability. She needs a place to live. She needs to be able to write. And her husband, who ran the um, Journal Le the de France, which she um, worked at as well and was actually very, very prominent. I mean, she should be a lot better known. She was the literary editor there um, and had the power to really make or break um, people's careers from about 1900 to 1930. So the marriage worked for her in the sense that um, it was stabilizing, but there was no love there on her part. And it was painful. Her husband was boring. And she was not, and um, and so there there are letters from her that really speak to that. And he figures in her in her novels sometimes, sort of obliquely as this dull, um, somewhat domineering, controlling figure. But it wasn't like he was violent or anything like that. And he dies long before her, so you know it's tragic in the sense that she doesn't have a true love. And Montefeu is mysterious that way. Her novels are quite sexual and she she's definitely was attracted to women, but she also there's a lot of you know heterosexual sex in there, and so it's hard to sort of imagine that she didn't have a lot of experience beyond that of her husband based on her novels um but who knows? she maybe just read a lot and uh, but her husband was older, and she there's a letter from her where she's telling La fronde where she worked, the feminist newspaper um where she worked for a few years saying. Sorry, my husband died yesterday. I won't be in until you know two days from now. Um, So she didn't need a lot of time off after that happened. And I, I think part of what was interesting to me about the marriages is that I'm not sure that these figures had they been born, you know, 20 years later, whether they would have married. But at the time, it was sort of the only way to to continue. It was dangerous to be single, and dangerous for a number of reasons you know, when Rashid applies for the pants permit, she says, I, I need this so that people will address me as a journalist. And it was sort of a, a means of protection for her to be able to to wear pants. Um, so I think, you know, we have to remember how vulnerable to appear feminine, not that they really necessarily did. Rashield did at, at various points, but they certainly felt vulnerable out and about in Paris um, without that protection.
1: A final theme I noticed is the theme of feminism. Feminism wasn't as strong in France as in England, but there was still a feminist movement during the third Republic. How did each person respond to the challenges of feminism?
0: Um, So that's a great question. We, you know, we know about these figures in part because of feminist history and women's history and all the great work that's been done. And so, and, and, that's how you come across these names in scholarship. And what's been frustrating to me is that um, there hasn't been enough room to, to understand some, you know, these kinds of act, embodying of um, difference and um, the kinds of behaviors that this kind of resistance to gender norms, shall we say, um, beyond the realm or beyond the framework of feminism. But as I said at the beginning, there's something different going on here that also shares something, right? So they were raised as women and they were treated for the most part, for a big part of their lives as women. And so they faced many of the obstacles that feminism sought to address. They were certainly, um, you know, they, they, they grew up and had to face a patriarchal society. So, um, So there is a way in which, right, feminism is relevant to understanding them. But we don't really have a way of thinking about people who who were treated like women and faced the obstacles that women faced, but might not have identified as women. We don't really have a framework for that. And in terms of their individual affiliations with it, you can see that they're, you know, feminism in France at the time is is complicated and it's not, it's not necessarily called feminism. There's kind of a political feminism. Um, it hasn't even really focused much on suffrage until a little bit later. Um, it's focusing on sort of laws around marriage, around children and child welfare, on poverty, on making conditions better for women, on on working women, and 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 things like that. And so these weren't necessarily the causes that these writers who were kind of more part of an elite intellectual milieu were were caught up in. Um, Julafoi becomes part of this sort of feminist intellectual community of writers, but her main feminist cause is that women should be able to participate in combat. (laughs) It's a very niche feminism and she supports this this group of women writers. Um, But her feminism, when she writes what she calls feminist theories later on, and you can see this is again like one of these topics that she's working and reworking and reworking, That's where she works out this sort of ancient woman thing. And the thing that she describes as her ideal woman, and she sort of chastises modern women for not being this, sounds a lot like a certain kind of man. And so she's using that term in a way that no one else in her time period is using. Rashield is incredibly frustrated because everyone sees her as a feminist. When feminism is sort of coming into view in the 1880s and 90s, and she describes um there's a letter in her archives where she's responding to someone saying you're like the 10th person who's asked me to comment on this why does everyone ask me about feminism and she's so clearly irked which we see much later on in her pamphlet from the 1920s called pourquoi je ne suis pas féministe right why i why i'm not a feminist <laughs> she couldn't have stated it more clearly again we all thought you know people continue to think that's just being provocative because by modern terms it looks like what she's doing is a feminist gesture. um but really, what she's saying there is, I'm not a feminist people because I'm not a woman. She says that rather clearly, like I don't identify with femininity. i'm not I don't think of myself as female. I'm kind of more neutral and uh, and so feminism because it doesn't it really doesn't identify them, and they're they're angry about it to a certain degree because it's a kind of misgendering, really. I think we might think about it in that way, that kind of chafing at it, that you feel, especially from Rashield, is like, don't put me in that category. That's not what I'm doing. At the same time, my book is trying to, I think that, you know, feminist scholars have a lot, have a lot to offer the analysis of these kinds of figures. And because the terms didn't exist, because these categories are fluid and Present themselves in different ways. Um, there's going to be some intermingling with what looks like feminism, and so I'm really hoping for a kind of um, working together of trans history and feminist history um, that works out that that the relationship between them and formulates it, so that when we look at these from figures from the past, we can we can articulate them better. I mean, I have um, been writing about these figures for a few years and. I get frustrated when people read it and acknowledge it and seem fascinated by by it and then go on to write about these figures sort of just not factoring in the, the, the paradigm shift that I'm proposing. And so I think that it really requires a much more nuanced idea of feminism. We can't just think of any gender rebellion that is by someone who appears to be a woman or has been known as a woman or was raised as a woman or assigned female at birth to necessarily be feminist. That's a very reductive view of feminism and it doesn't tell us very much. So if we really wanna understand these figures and understand this, the extent and the, the depth and the complexity of resistance to gender norms for you know coming from various directions at the time, we have to think about gender identity And sexual identity, for that matter, and really do um, more—at least in the field of of French history, nineteenth-century French history—that I'm working in—to to to allow for that to exist and to 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 reckon with that and um, and you know um, add some more depth to the field that way.
1: Since you touched on this. I want to ask: Are there any other ways that you want to see the field of historical LGBTQ studies expand?
0: I think it just has a lot of room for expansion, uh, and I am—I um, I mean, I, I would say so specifically. I would like that. I would like it to expand in a way that makes it really comfortable and inviting for LGBTQ individuals to feel like they have a voice in it, and you know, I think that that's something that. Happens with scholarship, we don't realize how much the parameters of our field determine who takes part in the field. And because, of course, on some level, we all we have to see ourselves in what we do. And I and so I would really hope that it, it widens the field and that there are more people who are who are actually who feel that who are who are stakeholders in a different way, um, you know, come and feel like they can do this work and that's meaningful to them. So that's one way. But I think that it's been you know, generally quite absent and quite siloed. So I would like to see these things integrated. I would like to see it not be something that you have to do separately, but that these be sets of questions that everyone is considering um, in their historical work and not feeling like, oh gosh, that looks like trans or queer history. And that's not what I do. So I kind of can't really touch that. I think that, you know, people have anxiety about, overstepping and, and moving in these kinds of different directions. And so um, just as with I want trans history to become more, um, you know, intermingled with, with feminist history, you know, that that's sort of my, my, my vision more broadly, because I would love for this to be a conversation that, you know, there's a whole field participating in. And I think for this period in France, there aren't a lot of people Doing this work, and um, I mean, if they are, and I and I don't know about you, I'm sorry. Please reach out to me. I want to, you know, I would love to have these these conversations and um, and to really, you know, be able to develop it further.
1: So, a final question is that I imagine that this was a controversial and difficult topic to write about from many different angles. What challenges did you face when writing the book?
0: So it hasn't yet been controversial. Um, it's, you know, I think it, it's, it's I, I can see why one would assume that it, it, ha- it would be. The challenge to me is that I, as I said, I didn't set out to write a book about trans history, um, but that is sort of where my research took me. And then at a certain point, I sort of, was very deep in it and very passionate about it because you become very attached to your subject and I became very attached to these figures. But at a certain point I realized this is what I was doing. And as a cisgender woman, I a heterosexual woman for that matter, I, I, I felt you know, I felt nervous about it, whether I had the right to do it, I didn't want to overstep, I didn't want to be um, you know telling someone else's story for all the reasons that you can imagine. On the other hand, I came to it, as I said, also from this kind of deep knowledge of the time period, and from an, and from a hole that I saw, that I really felt I was equipped, based on my other scholarship, to really address. And I, you know, just did as much work as I could to hear from as many people as possible, to listen to as many first-person voices on this. It wasn't. It's not really work of trans theory. You may have noticed. Um, I read many trans. Um, memoirs of various sorts and 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 really just tried to immerse myself in as many trans voices because it's certainly not a monolithic category by any means and I just wanted to be sensitive to you know overall I just wanted to be sensitive so I really sought out trans scholars and um, as many people as I could to to read and to engage with who helped me profoundly um, to to nuance my arguments the the, the challenge has been, as I said, because this field is limited, you want to have interlocutors who can sort of push back on these things and who know your the, the field as well. And it's, so it's hard to do that work. And it was hard to find people who are French historians or French literary scholars who felt really that they knew trans studies enough to speak to these issues. So that was, you know, so in some ways, you know, that, that's the that's that was the challenge of it. But for the most part, people have been tremendously receptive and um, and in this field, which is really pretty heteronormative, it's those scholar those scholars are very, very appreciative of this work and feminist scholars have been very appreciative of, of it as well. So um, while it might look like it would be something that might court controversy, it thus far has not, you know, the reviews are are still out there, I guess. And I think that it's a field that really welcomes this kind of work. So I hope that it encourages other people to to take what might seem like a kind of risk, to to write something like this, but really to um, you know, to follow where the where the thinking and where the scholarship takes you, because um generally I found, you know, people are um JK Rowling aside, um, the, the scholars are are receptive
1: to this work i was wondering if she would come up at any point during the discussion well thank you very much it was definitely a unique book and something which i had never read anything like it Uh, i want to thank you again for joining us on the podcast uh dr mesh
0: um it was my pleasure thanks so much for having me
1: as always donations keep the podcast going So if you would like to make a one-time donation or become a patron, please consider doing so. Thank you very much for your continued support. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If
0: you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help.